Well, Paul takes some time in our text today to talk about what happens when we die. It's a, it's, a, it's a topic people don't generally like to think about. And when they do, they come up with all kinds of wacky substitutes for biblical truth. For example, in the sci-fi series Upload, in the year 2033, humans can upload themselves into a virtual afterlife of their choosing. Kind of choose your own afterlife. In the teen-oriented series School Spirits, Maddie, who is a teen stuck in the afterlife, investigating her own disappearance, goes on a crime-solving mission as she adjusts to high school purgatory. And in the recent comedy in the last few years, The Good Place, the episodes follow Eleanor Shellstrop, a woman welcomed after her death to The Good Place, a highly selective, heaven-like, utopian afterlife designed and run by the architect Michael as a reward for her righteous life. But she realizes that she was sent there by mistake and must hide her morally imperfect past behavior while trying to become a better, more ethical person. Now, those are just three examples from a whole plethora of TV series and movies that, that flood our entertainment every year. But none of these ideas are based in biblical truth. Not a one. We often want to make heaven and the afterlife in our own design. Well, Paul doesn't get too detailed or too specific about what happens in the afterlife in our text, but he makes sure that we understand at least two important truths. And if we grasp these truths as followers of Jesus, it will help us live in this life. So here's the first truth. When we die, we get the clothes we need. Verses 1 through 5. Read verse 1 again. For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Think about what Paul just said there in verse 1. He's using metaphors. He uses a bunch of them in this passage. A tent and a building and a house to describe the different stages of our life here and there. The first comparison is between our current home, which is the tent, and the divinely built house to come. And what Paul's doing here is he's comparing, he's contrasting our life here on earth with our life to come in heaven. The first life is temporary. The first body is able to be, as our text says, destroyed. Literally, that means to be pulled down like a tent. And as a tent maker himself, as you can read about in Acts chapter 18, verse 3, Paul was well familiar with tents. And both he and the Corinthians would understand what Paul is talking about here when he's speaking about this earthly home, as he referred to it back in chapter 4, this jar of clay as a tent. But the second building that Paul is talking about today is eternal, as our text says. It's enduring. It's not able to be pulled down. It's going to last. 
And one of the reasons that we know Paul is describing death in this verse is because there are also three terms in this verse that are also used in another passage in the New Testament. The exact three terms. It, the, the other passage is Mark 14, verse 58. And there Jesus is quoted as saying this, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days... I will build another not made with hands. Those three terms there, destroy, build, and not made with hands, are all the same root terms as we see right here in verse number 1 of chapter 5. So Paul is likely drawing the attention of the Corinthians to these familiar words from the gospel, from the life of Jesus, describing Jesus' own death, to tell them he's talking about their death as well to the Corinthians. That word that's translated tent in verse 1 is also the same word that is used to describe the tabernacle of the Old Testament, which was temporary and movable and was replaced later by the more permanent temple, which is, by the way, the word that Jesus used in Mark 14 to describe his body. So after these pictures that Jesus puts or that Paul puts in front of us, after these contrasts he's showing us between our present body and our future body, Paul gets a little more personal. Look at verses 2 and 3. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. Yeah, the Danish author Hans Christian Andersen wrote a clever story about an emperor who spends lavishly on clothing at the expense of state matters. Two kind men come into his country and offer to supply him with magnificent clothes that are invisible to people who are stupid or incompetent. The emperor hires them and they set up their looms and they they get to work. And so the emperor, along with his advisors, they come in to check on these weavers, to check on their progress. And every time they come to check, they see that the looms are empty. But they pretend that they're not. So they avoid looking like a fool. Finally, the weavers report that the emperor's suit is finished. So they pretend to dress him. And he sets off in a parade before the whole city. And the townsfolk, all of the people are uncomfortably going along with this charade. Nobody wants to think that they're foolish or stupid until a child blurts out that the emperor is wearing nothing at all. The people then realize everyone has been fooled. You know, part of being a human being, at least since Adam and Eve's sin in the garden, has been to wear clothing. Although some sinners in their rebellion toward God flaunt nudity and immodesty, most people, believers or not, wear some kind of clothing in public and do not want to be seen naked. There's still a public shamefulness, for the most part, to nakedness. In fact, it is against the law in most countries not to be clothed in public. 
Back to the text. Paul's telling the Corinthians that he needs something when he dies. And he now turns, he t- he turns again to the metaphor of clothing. He introduced this back in verse 2 when he said to put on. He, he's trying to describe what happens when we die. And Paul says he groans and he longs for the heavenly dwelling that he will put on. Commentator Dane Ortland wrote this about this verse. This is more than back pain, erosion of cartilage in our knees, gradual hearing loss, decreasing energy levels. These are symptoms of a deeper groaning. The groaning from within, fueled by the acute knowledge that we are made for immortality. So when Paul is talking here about groaning and longing he's not just talking about us getting old and decrepit and feeling it he's talking about the groaning and the longing that comes because we know we're made for something more and it's coming and we can't wait for it without his immortal eternal heavenly body, Paul says he will be naked. Naked in our text is referring to that time between our death on the one hand and our resurrection, our bodily resurrection on the other hand. It's the time in between when our bodies are separated from our souls. Sometimes in theology we call that the intermediate state. It's, it's the time between our human body and soul and when we will have a heavenly body and soul. Now, Paul doesn't give a lot of specifics as to what we will be like during that time in the middle. Other than saying that, again, using the metaphor of clothing, we are naked in the, in the fact that we don't yet have our final glorified eternal body yet. Some people have speculated that our souls might be clothed during this time with clothing of brilliant light. And, and, and it's just speculation, but they get that from the New Testament where Jesus uh, is, goes through his transfiguration. Do you remember that? Where for, for a moment, the veil of his flesh, the Bible kind of describes as being pulled away. And Peter, James, and John see Jesus with Moses and Elijah. And, and the text describes Jesus as having clothing and a face that shines with a brilliant white light. And this is before Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's before Moses and Elijah have their resurrection bodies. So some people speculate that when we die and we go to heaven, that until we get our heavenly bodies, which we will get when Jesus returns, according to other passages that Paul gives in the New Testament, until that time, maybe we're clothed in some kind of a brilliant light. We don't know for sure. But he goes on in verse 4 to say, For while we are still in this tent, we groan, 
being burdened. Not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. Paul gives us a little further description to his groaning, his burdening here in verse 4. He says his desire is not to be unclothed, which of course we know means naked, or literally what he's talking about is bodiless, when the body is separated from the soul. That's what his desire is not to be. His desire is to be further clothed. It's the picture of not necessarily taking off the clothes you have on, but putting on a big overcoat on top of all of them. That's the picture. This is Paul's way of expressing his desire that he would live until Jesus returns. He would love to go from having a human body and soul right into having a heavenly body and soul. That would be his preference. And he would never be without a body due to death. Again, um, Dane Ortland is helpful here. He says, Paul's longing is not for a bodiless existence, but for a sinless existence. It is sin that must be eliminated, not the body. So you, you know that in the ancient Greek times, there was kind of that dualistic thought that the body was bad and the spirit or soul was good. And Paul's not saying he just wants to get rid of his body because body is bad. He's not saying that. But he knows that he, his current body, as our current bodies, are under the curse of sin and that we are still struggling with a sinful presence in our own selves as well as in the world around us. Paul's longing for that time when we will put on that overcoat, that eternal, permanent body that has no sin. And he's longing for that. I love the picture Paul gives us next in the verse. A swallowing up of the mortal body with the body of immortal life. It's like a big fish swallowing up a little fish. That's the picture. It's a complete overhaul. And Paul couldn't wait. For further encouragement, look what Paul offers in verse 5. Some additional truth. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So this supreme, eternal clothing that Paul wants to put on, he's longing to put on, He's groaning to put on. It's something that has been prepared by God Himself. It's His work. It's His gift to us. And the proof of this is the implanting of the Spirit in our current earthly bodies as a guarantee. And a better phrase for that word guarantee might be down payments. Maybe you've heard that before for this term. Because what the Spirit is guaranteeing will come our future bodies. That, that, that's certain. It is going to happen. But, what it, but when the Spirit comes into our life, that, that change, that transformation has already begun in us as we experience day by day as Paul has already told us back in, in chapter 3, 
from, from, uh, from grace to grace, we're being changed into the image of Jesus Christ. So the Spirit is the guarantee of what is coming, but he's also the beginning of it as well. He, he helps us today with our fellowship with God. He helps us with spiritual fruit bearing. And although our outer body, our outer flesh hasn't changed yet and won't change until we ha- are given the new heavenly bodies at Christ's return, our spirits and our souls have already had a, an amazing transformation as we'll see later in chapter 5. We've been made a new creation and day by day, that spirit, who's our guarantee of what's coming, is already at work in us, changing us, getting us ready for heaven to be like Jesus. It's a wonderful encouragement, isn't it? Brothers and sisters, when we die, these tents that we live in are earthly, decaying, burdened, bodies will be pulled down just like you take a tent down at the end of your camp what we need are new immortal sinless bodies and god has prepared them for us and guaranteed them for us through the gift of the holy spirit within us And when Jesus returns, as Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 15, as he tells us in in in, uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, as he he tells us in Philippians chapter 3 and other places, when Jesus returns, we will get the clothing we need, the clothing we long for. Not only this, but even better, number two, when we die, we get the Christ whom we love. We get the Christ we love. Verses 6 through 10. Because we are united to Christ, because we have been given the Holy Spirit, because God has prepared it for us, Paul testifies in verse 6, so we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord. For we walk by faith, not by sight. You know, Paul had said twice in chapter 4, you remember this little phrase? We do not lose heart. Remember that? In chapter 4, verse 1, and then in verse 16, kind of bookends that chapter. Well, here's the other side of that coin. Paul's saying that we not, not only do we not lose heart, but in, but in a positive way, we are always of good courage. Paul's saying this is the reason that we can live confidently even in the face of persecution, even in the face of trouble, even in the face of of suffering, even in the face of aging, even in the face of all the other ways that we groan in this life. All the, as Paul described it in chapter 4, all the light momentary afflictions that we endure because we expectantly believe that what is coming is so glorious that it can't be compared to this life at all. We have great courage. There's more than what we can see with our eyes, friends. A lot of times we think of 
this life as reality and what's to come as kind of the shadows. But friend, it's the opposite. This life is the shadow. The life that's coming is the true reality, even though we can't see it with our eyes yet. Right now, Paul says, we are home in the body. We're here on the earth. But one day, we will be home with the Lord. And that's what keeps us going. That's what gives us courage to walk by faith. It's what the author of Hebrews taught us in chapter 11 and verse 1. Now faith is the assurance, the confidence, the courage of things hoped for. The conviction of things not seen. It's what Paul told us at the end of chapter 4, probably right across the page, verse 18. We look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. Paul is so emphatic on this point that he says the exact same thing again in verse 8. Look at it. Yes, we are of good courage. And we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. Does this kind of anticipation characterize your life, Christian? Do you long, yearn, ache, groan, desire to be at home with the Lord? Be honest. Think about what is coming. Think about what is coming. It should thrill us. It should drive us. It should draw us like a magnet to be with Jesus, new body and soul as we were meant to be without sin in all the joys and delights of heaven. It is everything we could ever want. If you don't feel that way, and I know that sometimes you don't feel that way because sometimes I don't feel that way. If you don't feel that way, why not? Why not? What earthly passions are displacing the rightful desire to be home with Jesus? What idolatry in our hearts needs to be broken down so that Jesus can have first place in our soul's affections. This knowledge, by the way, sometimes when we talk about faith, you know, people say, oh, you know, Christianity is just kind of a fairy tale. It's a myth. It's a blind faith. No, Paul says we walk by faith, but this is based on knowledge. This is an assurance. This is a confidence that comes from knowing something. He said that in verse 1. We know. He said it in verse 6. We know. And this knowledge of what is coming gives us courage. And Paul says it twice to make sure you get the point. But not only does it give us courage, it gives us purpose. Look at verse 9. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please Him. Whether we are at home 
in heaven or away here on earth, we have a purpose. We have an aim. And it's a beautiful one, isn't it? To please Jesus. Sometimes when we talk about pleasing someone, we talk about pacifying them, you know, to get them off of our back. This is not that kind of pleasing. This is a pleasing based on your love for that person. That's what the original language points out to us. This is about someone that we think or consider well of. Because Jesus has loved us so much by dying in our place, by rising from the dead, forgiving our sins, preparing a place in heaven for us, we respond in love to do whatever He wants us to do. This is especially seen in the writings of John where over and over and over Jesus says things like, if you love me, keep my commandments. John 14, 15, John 14, 21, 23, 24, John 15, 10, 1 John 2, 5, 1 John 5, 3, over and over and over. John brings this point home, as does the Apostle Paul. The reason we submit our lives to Christ, the reason we become slaves of His at conversion is because we love Him. And we want to do whatever He asks of us. This purpose is motivated by our love for Christ. It's also motivated by the coming judgment. Look at verse 10. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. The word for judgment here in our text in the original language is the word bema. I, I wouldn't normally tell you that except it has some relevance here and I want to explain to you. This, this is a word, this word bema was a word that was known to the Corinthians. They had a bema in their city. In fact, here's a picture of the elevated platform in Corinth that was their bema seat. Here's another picture of that same wall from my trip there last October. On the top of the Bema in Corinth, there's also this beautiful little familiar verse that's carved into the stone. It, it might look familiar to you. I don't know if you can read it from here, but it's, uh, it's the verse that talks about our light momentary trouble that works a far eternal reward. It's in Greek at the top and then English underneath. Um, I don't usually do this in my sermons, but I'm going to take just a couple of minutes and I want to show you a short video clip that I shot in Corinth on this day from the top of the Corinthian Bema. Let's watch it. This is the Bema in Corinth, the judgment seat in the middle of the Roman Forum where Paul was brought to sin before the proconsul in Gallio as recorded in Acts 18. Paul didn't have to give a speech here, although he was ready to open his mouth. The proconsul stopped him and said, basically, the Jews didn't have a case. And this is where the Apostle Paul was brought. And this is where he was released. And this is where he served, the city of Corinth.
with its pagan temples and the temple of Aphrodite on the top of that mountain. It was the chief city of Greece in its day. This is all of the markets. It was a huge city, nearly a million people. The Romans had made it the capital of Greece for a short period of time. It was central on the trade route, east and west, north and south. And this is where Paul came. And he ministered for 18 months for the gospel's sake. In the synagogue first, and then after they threw him out of the synagogue, or after he turned away from the synagogue, actually, because they wouldn't hear him, he moved next door to the house of justice, right next door to the synagogue. And the ruler of the synagogue, Crispus, and his family became believers and joined them, along with a bunch of other Corinthians. And these were the people that the Apostle Paul wrote to in First and Second Corinthians. So just to give you a little context, to put some picture to what we're reading about, the Bema in Corinth was well known to the Corinthians. In fact, Paul had come before it, was dragged before it to be judged. And so when, they, when Paul says in verse 10, getting back to verse 10, that we must all appear before the Bema seat of Christ, they know exactly what he's talking about. This is a place of judgment. And one of the first questions that comes up when reading this verse for a lot of Christians is, wait, wait a minute, am I going to be judged in heaven for my sins? I thought Jesus took care of my sins. I, I thought he removed them as far as the east is from the west. I, I thought he declared me not guilty in heaven's courtroom. And friends, for the true follower of Jesus Christ, who is walking by faith in his death and resurrection, who is trusting in him alone for forgiveness of sins, who has repented and turned away from his sinful life, that person, that person will never be punished for their sins. God's word is clear. Jesus has already paid for their punishment in full on the cross. Think of the Bema seat as a review of your life with your friend, the Lord Jesus. No, it will not be, as some have speculated, a big movie screen in heaven showing all the bad things you did and thought. No, that will not happen in heaven. The word for done here in verse 10 when it talks about the things that we've done in our bodies, that word done isn't describing particular individual actions to be judged. It's talking about practices, habits, the trajectories of our life. We know that there will be rewards given at this time of review as well, as Paul teaches us in other of his letters. And we know that there will be loss of rewards too. Not punishment for sin. Not cancellation of salvation. But regret at what we could have done for the Lord. But didn't. Interestingly, as I mentioned in the video, when Paul was brought to the Bema seat in Corinth, he was prepared to answer the charges brought against him by the religious leaders. But the Roman proconsul dismissed the charges before Paul even had a chance to speak. 
You know, I think the heavenly Bema may be very much like that. Because the one who is our judge is also our advocate before the Father. The one who is our judge is also our defense attorney in heaven. Jesus is not there to punish us. He's there to perfect us. And that's the proper way to think about this time of judgment. There are other questions that people have about this passage. I can't get into all the what-ifs and speculation. If you have some more questions, uh, come and ask or uh, send us a note, and I'll be happy to address them if I can. But I'm going to ask the praise team to come back to the front. And as they're coming, we're going to sing another song in just a minute and, and close out our service with a benediction. But remember a few things about this Jesus who will review our lives with us at his Bema in heaven. Jesus was tempted in every way like we are. He knows us. He knows our weaknesses. He knows what it is to have one of his close friends sell him to the Sanhedrin for 30 pieces of silver. He knows what it is to have another close friend deny him three times. He knows what it is to be abandoned by all the rest of his friends who run away and hide instead of standing by him in his moment of trial. He knows what it is to be arrested on false charges. He knows what it is to be tortured. He knows what it is to be crucified. He knows what it is to be called a criminal when he did no crimes. That's who will be sitting at the Bema. The Bema judgment is not to frighten you, but to motivate you to show your love by pleasing Christ in this life and then in honoring Him through the rewards that you receive in the next. The Bema judgment was meant to actually encourage Christians so that they would take heart, that they would be of good courage, that they would continue on Jesus doesn't want His people to be a fearful people except to have a healthy fear of God. He doesn't want His people to be a discouraged people. You know, you may have come here this morning with a heavy burden. I don't know all of you here. I know lots of you, but I don't know all the particular situations of all of your lives. You may have come here this morning with a heavy burden. Heavy burden ready to call it quits on a job, a relationship. You may be full of fear, full of anxiety. You may be trapped in a spiral of depression, not knowing how to get out. You may be feeding a sinful habit that is dragging you further and further into hopelessness. Brothers and sisters, today is the day to find hope again. Today is the day to find courage. Today is the day to regain a purpose and aim in your life. 
Today is the day to take that first step of faith back to Christ and pleasing Him. He knows your pain. He also knows what is waiting for you in heaven. He longs for you to lean on Him and know His peace that overwhelms our understanding, our anxiety. And friends, if you are here this morning and don't call Jesus your Savior and Lord, you would have to answer the question, what happens when I die very differently and very tragically than those of us who follow Jesus? What you need to know is that He loves you and He's provided a way for you to be forgiven of all of your sins. A way to find a home in heaven only through Jesus. Through what He did on the cross, what He did in the tomb. And we would love to tell you more about that after this service concludes in just a moment. You can stop by our prayer room over here in the corner of our auditorium to the left. Talk to a biblical counselor after the service. Or just grab a Christian sitting near you and say, I need some help. Can you imagine the joy? Can you, just think about this for a minute. Can you imagine the joy, the, the absolute thrill of that day when our faith becomes sight. Can you imagine that, Christian? The day when Jesus returns and clothes us with our new, permanent, eternal, sinless bodies. The day when sin will be no more. The day when the trump of God will sound and Jesus will come in the clouds to take you home. Brothers and sisters, that certain knowledge should give you courage today. And every day. It should make it well in your soul. Let's stand together. We're going to sing in response to God's Word this morning. If we can help you with a spiritual struggle, or perhaps someone here has, has become a follower of Jesus but never taken that first step of obedience, that first step of pleasing Jesus by being baptized and identifying with Him publicly, we'd love to help you with that. Perhaps you would like to become a member of Heather Hills. Join us in our mission to share Jesus with our neighbors and follow Jesus together. If, if you're in a need of any of those things or anything else, please grab one of us pastors after the service. Stop by the prayer room. Ask a Christian near you. And we will be sure to get you the help that we need. But let's sing this great, wonderful hymn uh, that uh, just describes the sorrow of this life, but also the joy of the next. Think of that last verse when we get there too. When our faith will be sight what it will be like. Try to imagine it. Try to bring that joy, that thrill back into your heart. Long for that day. Let's sing together.